Let's go ahead and begin our reading in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, which is actually finishing a statement. In verse 21 it says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of His body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, as we consider it this morning, we are dealing with marriage. But before we get too far into that, let's start with this. Let's, let's start with a question, with how do we get here? How did we get here in our relationships between husbands and wives? And how we got where we are today starts, we've got to go all the way back to creation. God starts out and He creates Adam. He gives him the job of tending the garden. But at that point, God recognizes that something's not complete yet. Something's not good. And what isn't good is it's lacking that marriage relationship. You realize at this point, God has created six days worth of things. And at, the, at every day, he stepped back and looked at what he's created and said, behold, it is good. This is the first time within that whole process that God says something is not good. And we find in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, he says, Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper. And then notice that last little phrase, fit for him. He's making a helper for Adam, which means this is a relationship that is purposeful. Because you know what? If you're doing nothing, you don't really need any help. But if you're accomplishing a purpose, if you're carrying out a task, then you may need some help. And so this is a relationship that is purposeful because God says He needs a helper. Now, we also notice that it's a relationship that is structured because the person that's going to help Him is identified as that, as a helper. And so there's Adam who's going to be the head of this project, Eve who's going to be His helper, but she is going to be somebody that is fit for Him, that is just made for Him. And that's what we get to experience within that marriage relationship. And that's how God created it to be. They have two people that were just, well, one was made for the other. And it's a relationship of purpose and, and structure and, and, and unity. Just two verses later in verse 20, it says that man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. In other words, what he didn't need was a dog. Definitely not a cat. Well, that just goes without saying. But he didn't, he didn't need an animal. He didn't need a pet. He didn't just need an oxen to help plow the Garden of Eden. He didn't need a horse to be able to get around it on. He did, what he needed was Eve. God then makes Eve in Genesis 2.21-24. through 24, says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become 
one flesh. And so you got this relationship that's an amazing unity. It's kind of cool because God takes one, Adam, takes a rib out, makes Eve, becomes two, brings it back to one. And then focuses on this oneness. The two becoming one flesh signifies a unity to their, that they're supposed to have spiritually and socially and emotionally. It's also a, a unity that is expressed physically through sexuality. And then it's a, a unity that is also seen through children because two people become one and a child is born one child. And, and so even that illustrates it. And so it really, this, this idea of two people becoming one is so strongly stated here at this point. And that's what God intended marriage to be. This purposeful, structured relationship where you would be one with one another and functioning to bring glory and honor to God. But then, that's not really where we are today, is it? At least not in our relationships in our country. Because about 50% of the relationships and the marriages fail. And of people that live together, even more than that fail. And so, it doesn't really seem to be where we live yet. So we need to cover a little more territory. And the territory that we need to cover, it happens right after that. And it's in the fall. When mankind ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to. And what happens there is we see a breakdown. And Adam, in the end, Adam gets all the responsibility for it. When you read all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, the fault of sin being upon the human race is laid at the feet of Adam. But Eve has an important part in it because Satan comes to Eve. And what is he doing? He he challenges that structure to begin with because he comes to Eve and he says, why don't you make this decision for you and Adam and make it independent of Adam? Because God had put Adam as the head and then Eve as his helper. And he's asking Eve to step out of being a helper and take the lead. And Eve listens to him, and she eats it, and then she gives it to Adam, and Adam fails because Adam, instead of exercising uh, the headship that he should have, a godly headship and leadership, he should have said, no, we, don't, we, we need to not do that, we need to, and gone the right direction, but he didn't. Instead, he submitted, and he gave in and brought mankind into this sin. And then it gets worse. The step that Eve made there in doing that gets perpetuated down through the generations. We see that when God gives out the curse. Because then when he comes along uh, to Adam and Eve and says, what did you do? And he brings out the whole thing and he begins to curse. And he curses the ground for Adam's sake. And now work is going to be hard by the sweat of your brow. You're going to do it. And it's going to grow thorns and thistles and all that kind of stuff. But what does he say to Eve? In, In chapter 3, verse 16, he says to Eve, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So childbearing is not part of the curse, but pain in childbearing is part of the curse. And it looks pretty painful. In pain you shall bring forth children. But then he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, uh, she's going to desire to manipulate, to, to lead, to overthrow. And But look at the other half of that equation. The other half of that equation is, but he shall rule over you. And the idea of that is that he will rule with an iron hand. Down through the ages, because of this sin that mankind stumbled into in exactly the same way, within our marriage relationships, there's going to be a desire of the woman to take control and take the lead and and dominate her husband. And there's also going to be the desire on the husband's part to rule with an iron fist and to keep that woman down. And that doesn't really sound like a recipe for a peaceful marriage. You see, we see the very beginnings of two things that we see prevalent within our society. Within our society, you can find places where there is male chauvinism. And you can also find the women's liberation movement. The root of both of those things is right back at the fall of sin. It is wrong for for a wife to try to usurp the authority of her husband and, and to take control within the marriage and the family relationship. And it is equally wrong 
for a man to be a dictator to rule with an iron hand. And Ephesians is about giving us the remedy for that situation and restoring harmony back to the relationship. As we look at both the curse and the command, we see that it makes sense in leading toward redemption. In the curse we see within the woman, we see that uh, part of this curse is that she would have a desire to rule, but then the command given to her is to do what? It's to submit. The man is going to have the desire to rule harshly, but what is the command to him? Love. Love will overcome that harshness. Submission will overcome that desire to rule. And so the next thing that we need to consider into this how did we get here equation is redemption. Jesus Christ is about redemption. Bringing salvation and bringing God's will back into fruition. And so that's why when we get to the book of Ephesians that we see that in what the plan was in the original is what God's plan is still today. You know, John MacArthur put it this way. He said, His plan is neither the exaltation of man and suppression of woman, nor the exaltation of woman and suppression of man, but for the perfection and fulfillment of both man and woman as He ordained them to be. So as we look at the picture of the whole Bible, we can start to get a clue on where we are in our marriage relationships. We can see what they were intended to be at creation. And we can see what they uh, became through the fall. And we can see that we need this redemption to take place for Christ to set things right, for our relationships to be back what they are supposed to be. Well, now we also need to consider the context of the book of Ephesians. Well, in Ephesians we find, first of all, that it dealt with our position. Remember, it spent the first three chapters basically saying this. You are a child of God that God chose out before the foundation of the world, has a great inheritance on future in the world, and that is who you are. You are a beloved child of God. Then he goes from there to telling us, live like it. Well, one of the ways, the last way that we looked at a walking worthy of that was that we were to walk in wisdom. In verse 15 of chapter 5, he tells us to walk in wisdom. Verse 17, he tells us that that involves discerning the will of God. That's what we're doing. That's, as we look at, this, at our families and our husband-wife relationships, we're trying to discern what is the will of God for our husband-wife relationships, and so we can flesh that out. And so we discern the will of God. That leads to being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then remember, verse 21 is actually the completion of a statement. He was telling us what you could see when you were filled with the Holy Spirit. What, what results would that bring in your life? And what were the results? Remember, we pointed out that they were corporate worship. So they would worship corporately. There would be a consistent thanksgiving because we would thank God and everything. And then there would be a Christ-honoring submission to one another. And that's where he hits verse 21, submitting to one another in Christ. Now what he's doing when he hits verse 22 is he's saying, okay, what does that mean? If a wife submits herself to her husband, what's that look like? If a husband is, is submitting, what does that look like? If children are submitting, what does that look like? And so that's where we're at in the context of Ephesians. You need to be filled with God's wisdom. Why? Because you're a child of God. You need to be filled with God's wisdom, which will help you discern His will, filled with the Spirit, which will lead you to submit yourselves one to another. And now he's going to go to the family and say, this is what that looks like within the family. We recognize that there's different appearances that submission takes on throughout the rest of the chapter and the next chapter. As he deals with wives, he uses the words submit and respect. And you know what? We're really not going to go redefining those things. You kind of know what they mean. They are what they are. And I would rather get on board with God than try to get him on board with us. So wives, they use the word submit, respect. With husbands, they look like love. As children, they're supposed to obey and to honor. Well, first instruction that he gives is to the wife. 
he says that her responsibility is to submit, to lovingly follow the leadership of her husband. Down in the end of the passage, verse 33, he also uses the word respect. So respect and submit are the two words that are used to carry, uh, to communicate what the wife's responsibilities are. John Piper puts it this way, it is a disposition to yield to the husband's authority and an inclination to follow his leadership. It doesn't mean that the husband's going out making all the decisions and the wife is lumping it behind him. If you read the, the passage as a whole, you absolutely cannot get that impression. This is a wife that has utmost respect and submission for her husband who is totally enamored with her and adores her and loves her. And if you have somebody that adores and loves, are they going to wield their authority in a way that's harsh? It just doesn't draw that picture. So what is a wife's responsibility? A wife's responsibility is submission and respect. The reason that we get for it is he lists two of them within the passage. One of the reasons that he lists is because of the headship of the man. In other words, he's just going back to Genesis and he's saying, look, this is how it was created. It's not talking about who you are as a person. It's not saying the man is any better of a person than the woman is. It's not saying the man is any more intelligent than the woman is. It's not saying the man is any more gifted than the woman is. It's not saying any of those things. Within my relationship, often in many of those things, it's the other way around. I consider myself to be not nearly as gifted as my wife is. And you know, as we deal with some of these things within society, there's so many pressures on women in society. Women have a natural thing put in them by God to be ultimately concerned about their home and their family and they want to have those things the way that it is. And then society comes along and puts a, an added pressure on and says, well, yeah, but you also need to give up some of that to go out and have a career and you got to be this successful woman and you got to do this for not only for yourself, but for womankind as a whole. But you're not living up to your potential if you're not outside of the home, having your accolades from outside the home. And it just puts so much garbage on the shoulders of women. And you know, actually, whenever I've dealt with this passage in the past, I've never had a woman come up and afterwards and say, you know what, you're wrong on that. I have had them come up and say thank you. Because you know what? The world puts so much pressure on us and what we are as women. And it runs contrary to God's word. And thank you for pulling some of that pressure off. You know, Lisa and I, like I said, we deal with this. And there's times where she says, you know, in fact, fairly frequently, you know what? I should be going to work. You're the one working and bringing in the paychecks and stuff like that. I should be going to work. I should be doing this. And I'm like, why? She has, we tried that once for a little while. It doesn't work too well. Between the church and our family and our home and stuff, she's got plenty to do. She's, she's working overtime already. In fact, I tell her, you know, you're earning half of my income at the church anyway. And, all right, I can see the look on your face. It's actually about two-thirds, but I'm not going more than that. <laughs> but why does she feel like that? She feels like that because our culture puts that on her. The headship of man just deals with the, the order of creation. This is the way God created. He created Adam first and He created Eve as a helper. And that's just the way it works the best. And you know what? It works wonderful that way. I know when I make decisions, I don't make any decision without Lisa. First thing on my mind is how is it going to impact her? And then also with it, I want her wisdom. You know why? Because she's built different than I am. I'm, I'm kind of more like I'm, I'm seeing the forest. She's seeing the trees. And I'm, I'm more, and men tend to be this more, that we kind of, kind of bulldoze a lot of people to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish along the way. And, and the wife is often the thing that's standing there and say, wait a minute, don't bulldoze those people. And she has saved me from so many poor decisions or poor methods or poor things just because I continually bounce things off of her and I keep continually want her, her understanding and her influence because I only have a part of the picture and she's got the other part and she's fit for me and we need that. God built men a certain way and He built women differently. And so we, we complement one another. We need the full picture. But He created husbands to have that uh, headship. But secondly, he says the other reason is the lordship of Christ. 
And he gives the example, and he uses the same example through both the men and the women as the example of Christ within the church. He says, look, just as the church submits to Christ, that's how the wives are supposed to submit to the husbands in everything. Well, then also to the husband. The husband, he says, our responsibility is sacrificial love. That is fleshed out in several different ways. In fact, four of them within the passage. Um, First of all, we see that in this sacrificial love, we're to do what? We're to treat her with dignity. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's that sacrificial love. You're to give of yourself. Um, for the husband being the head of the wife, doesn't mean you lord that over them. You actually, you actually serve. You give yourself. The husband doesn't just blast through the door and let it slam on the wife because he's the head. What does he do? He grabs the door and he opens it for the wife to go in. That's the difference between a despot and somebody that's a servant leader. And that's the difference between what we get out of the fall and what God wants it to be. Look at how it describes what Christ does for the church. And that's our example. It says that He might sanctify her. Sanctify her means to set her apart as special. It means to make her holy. He says that He sanctifies her and cleansed her by washing of water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor. And so, as a husband, as he sacrificially loves his wife, what does that involve? It involves treating her with dignity. In other words, you're, you're set aside special to me. You're important to me. You're valuable to me. But then not only does he treat her with dignity, he also treats her with desire. He desires her. Because look at what Christ in the church, he does all this stuff to do what? To present the church to himself. And it's that, really that picture of the bride coming down the aisle, all dressed in white and, and glamorous and beautiful and being presented to the groom. And you know what? That day should never get over for us. One of the words that I like to use to refer to Lisa is my bride. Because forever, that's what she is. The day that she walked up in that aisle and was presented to me as mine, that stays fresh. That desire needs to be cultivated and maintained. Now, not only that, but also that uh, we need to treat her as the priority. We will leave our mom and our dad and cleave, hold fast to our wife. Up until that point, your mom and dad are really your priority relationship in your life. Until you get married. When you get married now, she is it. Our kids are with us for a while and they go and yeah, they never stop being our kids. And yes, we love them to death and we always want to be a part of their life. And and, because otherwise we don't get the grandkids hanging around as much. And... You know, there's more, obviously more, much more reason than that. That relationship with that wife from the day you get married, she has to be more important than them kids. She is the priority relationship. Now, that doesn't put your, your kids at a very bad place, <laughs> but because she is everything. You hold fast. You cling to her. She's your priority. And then, not only that, you need to treat her with intimacy. C.S. Lewis, I think in his book on the four loves, talks about the different kinds of love. There's this love that you share with your spouse that it's the two of you side by side together taking on the world, handling the things of life. Part of the love that you experience as a couple is walking side by side. He said, but you know what? Part of your love is the word eros. It's face to face. It's passionate. It's intimate. In the Bible, it talks about, it says, and the two shall become one flesh. That is experienced in different ways. It's a oneness. It's a unity. It's an intimacy that is shared only with that person. The marriage relationship is a place where there's an intimacy that you don't experience anywhere else. And so the husband, he's supposed to uh, sacrificial love that fleshes itself out by showing dignity, desire, priority, and intimacy within that relationship. 
the reason that he gives for that is, again, he points to Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. Christ loved the church, and so he gave himself for the church. That's what husbands are supposed to love his wife, their wives and give themselves for their wives. Now, lastly, I would like to do this. Let's just get the big picture, because there's some things that as we focus on all the details going down through here, that unless we stop and kind of collect those things together and see them together, we miss some very important things. The first thing that we need to consider in the big picture is that this is not the problem, it's the solution. You know, one of the things that I've found in counseling over the years and helping people with, with marriages is that they're afraid. They're afraid that if, if I just give in, if I just submit, then I'm going to get trampled on. Or the husband is like, well, if I do that, if I love her in those ways, what's to ensure that she's going to do her part? They look at it almost like this is more the problem than it is the solution. I'm going to get trampled if I submit like I should. I'm going to get trampled if I love like I should. Uh, you're absolutely wrong. This isn't the, the problem. It's the solution. You've got to look at the whole picture. And when you look at what's happening here, it's a very beautiful relationship. We see it when we look at Christ in the church. Because Christ gave Himself for the church. He cleansed the church. He sanctified the church to, to Himself. He loves the church. He equips the church. He provides for the church. He leads the church. And the church submits to Christ and follows Christ. Why? Because we respect Him. We love Him. We trust Him. Because we see Him laying down His life for us. Well, it's the same way within the marriage relationship. The wife lovingly submits to the husband because she respects the husband and trusts the husband. And, and, it's, and it's easy for her to trust because she sees him making sacrifices and giving and, and laying down his life for her in, in many different ways and showing compassion and treating her with dignity and having a desire for her and, and all these different things. And so it works very well. I don't know how many times Lisa and I have had this conversation. She says, you know what? It's so easy for me to submit to you. I love submitting to you when I know you love me. And that's the part of the big picture. When you look at what He commands the woman and what He commands the man, what our responsibilities are, we each are commanded to give the other person exactly what they need. Remember, we're programmed different. Men are programmed toward respect. Women, they want more than respect. They want love. And is there love and respect? Absolutely. And you can even look at Titus chapter 2. tells women to love their husbands as well. So there's that command too. But, but the, the point is, we experience them differently and we respond to them differently. And if a man is, is disrespected, you got trouble. And a woman doesn't feel loved, you got trouble. And that's why the man is commanded to give, do for the woman exactly what she needs to flourish. She needs to experience and feel that love that her husband has for her. And he needs to feel that respect that she has for him. Those two things are in place. Everything works out pretty good. And that's how we're built. It's not wrong. It's not something to try to overcome. It's something to enjoy. But you know, that's why even when you look back at us as little kids and stuff like that, two little girls have a problem. One, one little girl hurts the other little girl's feelings. And boy, there's trouble. And there's trouble until when? There's trouble until there's an apology. They've got to talk it out a little bit. They've got, they got to mend the relationship in some way. What happens with little boys? Little boys get pushed into a corner, they get disrespected to a certain extent, and it's going to get solved. But you know how it's solved? A couple cut lips, bloody nose, black eye. I'm not saying that's the right way to handle it, but that is often the way that it gets handled. But then, it's kind of amazing when you think about it, but so many little boys that start out in a fight end up being the best of friends. And you want to know why? It's not because they apologized. And it's, it's not because... They got on the same page with their feelings. It has nothing to do with that. It's because win or lose, you've earned a little respect today. And now you can both respect each other and get on with it. 
And the last thing they want to do in the world is talk about that. And so that's why, bear with us, ladies, that's why we don't know what to do with you. You're a mystery to us, and we love the mystery. But we're about to seal the deal on this topic of discussion with a really valid point. But we do it in the wrong way, because that's how we do it. And when we do that, we hurt your feelings. And I'm not diminishing your feelings. Your feelings are important and valid. But because we trample your feelings, which communicates something to you, that we don't love you, and then you completely catch us off guard because we're giving you a reason for why we think the way that we do. And then all of a sudden you respond with, you don't love me anymore. And we're like, what? <laughs> we're just not totally off guard. You know, at least and I, we've gone through this a number of times. One of the things that I've learned repeatedly is when I trample on her to make a point, I, might, I can stop making the point right now because it's no longer the issue. Whatever we were discussing is not the issue. The issue now is my love for her because she's not sensing it. We can handle any issue from a context of our love for one another. We can take on anything. But if I make her feel unloved in the process, that is now secondary to the main issue of where is your love for me? And rightly so. But unfortunately at that time, I'm feeling a little disrespected. And you know what? Talking out feelings for men, that's not our realm. We're not comfortable there. And we don't succeed there. And when we're feeling disrespected, we're looking for something we can succeed at. And we know we're not going to find it there. And so if we turn away from a conversation, or we turn away from it, if we're quiet for a while, it's not because we don't care. And it's not because we think it's unimportant. It's because we're completely lost. And we're not sure what needs to happen here. But you see, that's, that's the point. Those are the kind of things that, that we're dealing with. That the wife needs your love reinforced steady. No matter what you're dealing with, needs to come from that platform of love. And the husband needs to feel that respect. That his wife doesn't think that he's just a big dummy, even though he might be acting like it at the moment. But that, that there is a respect level there. That she honors him. When you have both of those things in place, you can take on anything. And so this, this thing, it's not the problem. It's the solution. We, we, need to be able to, we need to be able to do this. We need to continue to show that, husband, do what you're supposed to do. Love your wife. Wives, do what you're supposed to do. Honor your husband. Respect your husband. Submit to your husband. But then lastly, let's, do, let's leave it at this. Focus on your end of the deal. You know, so many, times, so many times when I've dealt with marriage relationships, the husband is saying, you know what, she's not submitting to me like she should. She's not doing her part. Uh, the wife's feeling like he's not doing his part. I don't feel love. And you know what? When that happens, when the wife is disrespecting the husband and the husband is responding in ways that are not loving towards the wife, it's like a big snowball rolling down the hill. You need to get out of that snowball and get into a different one. And the reason I say that is this. The same thing can happen on the positive side. If the husband stops focusing on the wife, it's not your job to evaluate her. It's your job to enjoy her, to adore her. Do that. Stop evaluating her and measuring her by whether you think she's fulfilling her obligations or not. Rather, focus on yours. Focus on how am I loving her? What do I need to do for her? What should I lay down today for her? How can I make her feel secure in this relationship? How can I make her feel dignified? How can I make her feel desired? How can I build that intimacy into our life? You do that. You'll have a different wife than the one you're having if you're not doing those things. I mean the same person, but the wife, the same thing. If the wife quits focusing on what the husband's doing wrong and focus on your end of it, that's what the marriage problems usually boil down to. 
is this principle. When he wrote Ephesians, notice that he did not say, husbands, make your wives submit. And he didn't tell wives, make your husband love you. He told wives, you take care of your end. And he told husbands, you take care of your end. If both people are taking care of their end, there's really not a problem. If both people are taking care of their end, this is one beautiful relationship. And this is a very enjoyable life together. So as we exercise God's wisdom, discern His will in our life, filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting one to another, this is how it looks. For husbands and wives, wives in deep respect for their husbands, gladly submit to His leadership, and the husbands sacrifice everything for their wife. They lay down their life to be everything that they can be and to work together as a unity. And when we can do that, it works very well. You want to know why? Because we are fit for each other.